Today we're going to be in Matthew 18. Now, the last time we looked at the glory of the Lord in Matthew 17, and there's just some portions of scripture that are just so dynamite. I mean, God's glory. Uh, It just was such an easy teach for me. And some come up to me and say, that was a great message. And I'm like, it wasn't me. I could just have read it and it would have had the same effect because it's God's word. Uh, Today, we're going to jump into the chapter 18, which I'm going to divide into two sermons. Uh, It's very rich. I don't want to rush through it. Uh, The first sermon, which is going to be today, having the correct attitude and responsibility towards others. And then next Sunday, you see there's really a division, a dividing line, having the correct attitude and responsibility towards our brothers. Uh, So the first one deals with those that maybe don't know any better. Maybe they're unsaved. Maybe they're... um, you know, fragile or vulnerable or the least esteemed in society? How do we look at them? How do we deal with them? And then next Sunday, we're going to, again, look at those uh, in our own, you know, in our own church, uh, other brothers, maybe family members, brothers and sisters, but those that know the Lord and how we interact with each other. So we're going to jump in with verse 1, Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So I enjoy taking Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, and Luke's gospel, because they all speak about this, and putting it together from all their perspectives and painting a a picture. I love to do that. Uh, So the disciples, the Bible tells us in the other scriptures, were actually arguing about this. They were arguing before Jesus perceived what they were discussing, and then they gave up the goods. But they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, maybe a little puffed up at this point. But Jesus puts a child in the midst of these men with aspirations. And I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop. Imagine walking with the Lord. What's he doing? (laughs) We just were talking about who's going to be the the general and who's going to be the admiral and the lieutenant. And what's this kid doing in the midst of us? So Jesus changes the dialogue from really greatness to he's like, no, no, no. Let's just talk about entrance first into the kingdom of heaven. You guys are overstepping your boundaries here. Conversion to be as a child, humility as a child, even today is a hard pill for many to swallow. Sometimes that's the last thing that we want to be. Now let's just take this in steps. The first trait, according to the Lord, of greatness, not what the world thinks, the first trait, according to the Lord, number one, to become like a child. So let's look at some of the attributes of a child. You know, observe in the children's ministry when kids are playing, right? Um, maybe make a checklist as we're reading some of these attributes. Number one, of course, there's humility. The question is, am I teachable? Is there an innocence about me? Am I trusting? Am I gentle? Am I obedient? Dependent on a greater person? Loving? Vulnerability? Now, it's very interesting because uh, whether you look at being converted as a child, or go back to John chapter 3, Jesus says, you can't even get into the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. So you see these two emblems of a baby, vulnerable, and a child, vulnerable. 
It really makes you think. These are one of these scriptures where you just have to look at it and just kind of be pensive about it. The second trait of greatness is humility. This is an elusive trait. Someone said, once you know you have humility, you've immediately lost it. Right? Think about that one. Um, now some, listen, there's manipulation. Uh, you know, and some even believers, we manipulate ourselves and we try to manipulate the Lord in prayer. But there are believers who, if you're having a surgery and you want to be on the prayer list, that is awesome. We should always be looking for prayer. But you know, there's some believers that every time you see them, it's woe is me. You know, they always try to, and you know, you're laughing because you see it. What they do is it's a false humility. Always trying to get somebody to, oh, to think about them. No matter what it is, every time this person comes, they have this attitude of woe is me. That's not what Jesus is speaking about. Someone also said, and I'm not going to steal any of this because these are very good quotes, uh, humility is not thinking bad of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself at all. The thought doesn't come to your mind or you usher it out in light of something else. Uh, I remember speaking this this past Wednesday, the Wednesday night Bible study of, you know, every pastor gets one of those ministry applications that the person, you know, the person writes a ministry application, never served anywhere in the church before. Pastor, if you go on vacation, I'll fill in for you on Sunday. Wow. I don't even know you. I'm a Bible scholar. You know, it's a little presumptuous there. Here's the deal. And this is what way I was taught. In order to be qualified for leadership, sometimes you've got to clean the garbage, vacuum the rugs, the toilet's dirty, clean the toilet. Right? Again, I believe that's, some will never get their hands dirty. What we notice when we start studying the scripture and these concepts over and over again is that our ideas and God's ideas are often inverted. You know, and it's obvious when you look at the disciples. Uh, I, and I, I, would, I think if I walked with the Lord for three years, I might measure my words a little bit more. But he knows my thoughts anyway, so he might as well just blurt it out. But we have these ideas of greatness and, and uh, what it takes or what it takes to be in ministry or leadership. And then you read the Bible and you see, well, it doesn't really match up with what I thought. They're usually inverted. Again, we're sinful man and he is a holy and righteous God. Now... Mark 9 adds that Jesus said, if you desire to be first, you shall be last and servant of all. Wow. So the third trait of greatness is to move from humility really to servitude. Jesus said he didn't come to be served. And there are some ministries out there, the pastors and the worship leaders and, you know, the elders, they're all treated like kings and everybody has to bow before them or kiss the ring. That's just weird. Jesus set the example. I didn't come to be served, he said, but to serve. And there's a difference. What does this have anything to do with leadership? The answer is everything, because it's a heart attitude. Warren Wearsby has an awesome uh, quote. He says, this is great, by nature, all of us are rebels who want to be celebrities instead of servants. It takes a great deal of teaching for us to learn the lessons of humility. That's powerful. In the flesh, we want to be noticed. We want to be celebrities. We don't want to pick a paper off the rug. We want those to notice us. And if we're in ministry, to tell us how smart we are and what a great sermon that we produced. But not according to the truth, not according to what God says. I look at the ushers. I come in in the morning. They don't raise their hand and say, look at me. They're vacuuming the rugs. They're taking out the garbage. These guys are 
they get it. They get it, what it means to be humble and servants. The children's ministry, you know, wiping runny noses. And I see sometimes I leave my office and there's a lot of screaming in that classroom. And the teachers just love those kids so much. They have so much patience and they deal with them and they try to make them feel better. Right? They're raising the next generation of believers, of pastors, of evangelists. So there's there's uh, servitude. There's humility there. Verse 5. And whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now, this is a very interesting concept. I call it the mirror concept of representation. And this is repeated in God's word. So the first thing is, let's look at this mirror. Let's look at the reflection here. The first thing is that I will, and we've said this a lot, we as believers want to be, we represent Jesus, whether you like it or not. Every, like the expression goes, you may be the only Bible that anyone ever reads. So when we go out into the world among our relatives, among our peers, in our jobs, we represent Christ, sometimes good and sometimes bad. Now, here's the mirror. Those who were least in society, the little one, the children, the least esteemed, guess what? They are also representatives of Christ because Jesus identifies with them. And, and you, you scratch your head, that one scripture Jesus takes the sheep and the goats and he separates them and one go to eternal glory in heaven, one go to eternal damnation. And to the ones who went to glory, he said, you know, when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And the ones who did the right thing scratch their head and, and say to Jesus, when did we see you hungry or naked or in peril? Jesus says, if you've done these to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. So when we deal with the least in society, they, Jesus identifies. He stands in the gap for them, and he judges us based, basically on how we treat them. So you see this, this mirror reflection. I love that. Now, if a Christian would, to me, Christ, I believe every Christian, if Christ walked in and you know, came down from the clouds, we would all be joyful and couldn't wait to see him and, and take care of him. But what about some Joe Schmo off the street who walks into the church? A nobody. You know, how we treat that person says a lot about our walk with the Lord. Jesus said, I stand up for the nobodies, the weak, the defenseless. I loved that cartoon when I was a little boy. Remember Underdog, the little dog with the cape? Underdog. I didn't understand that concept until years later, but he was the, the underdog, the little guy, you know, and he would try to make the, the wrongs right in society. Jesus stands up for the underdogs, and if we're his followers, we will as well. So the fourth trait is our reception of those, the least esteemed in society. Remember, Jesus spoke of the religious leaders. He said, you guys love the best seats at the market, at, at the feasts, and, and everyone you know, bows down to you in the marketplaces. He goes, you guys are hypocrites. You guys got it all wrong. They love the accolades of men and the worship of men. No, it's not good. Remember why Jesus is teaching on this to begin with, because the disciples, let's remember, they're getting caught up in their celebrity status. They're getting caught up in their personal greatness and their position. So Jesus has to have them be humbled a little bit. I got to tell you, I like the nobodies of the world because the celebrities of the world are very high maintenance. You know, <laughs> you know those people. They just think so much of themselves and oh, they're just so high maintenance. I look at what's going on in India with the Dalits, uh, the untouchables, the nobodies in that society. They're not even treated like humans. And by the thousands and tens of thousands that come into Christ, 
because they don't need that societal status anymore. They found the Lord. They finally have freedom from that culture in a spiritual sense. I love that. Verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now there's a, a subtleness that you may not see in the English, but the word changes that Jesus uses from the child to the little ones. Now, little ones can also mean less in dignity or the least of persons. Maybe a socio-economical type of impact. And that's why I'm starting to make that transition. He apparently broadens the scope here. Those needing reception and now those being protected from being stumbled. Not only the, the children or the weak in society physically, but let's now move this out. Let's open up our minds. The unbeliever, the, uh, the fragile new believer, or the spiritually vulnerable, the spiritually delicate. So it opens up a whole new field. Verse 6, to cause another to sin. Verse 7, to offend. The word in the Greek is scandalizo, where we get the English word to scandalize, to trap, to stumble, to entice someone to sin. Now we can look at this in the world. We can look at the parent who wants to be their teenager's friend, who's overly permissive with drugs, alcohol, sex, just to be cool with their teens. That's a stumbling block to that teenager. When that teenager is looking for guidance, giving them something else. Two, the TV producers, we spoke about MTV. You know, they're always on the edge of what they can put out there. Uh, that series called Skins. Again, uh, trying to take the innocence away from teenagers. Teenagers have it rough because they're assaulted. They're bombarded with all this garbage from the world. Now let's switch gears. It's infinitely worse when it happens in the church. When those who claim to be Christians, and if you are here and you don't know the Lord, or you haven't made a profession of faith, or you're a weak or, or new or fragile believer, you're going to see believers. You're going to see those in the Christian culture who are going to do things. And you, God may even give you a check in your spirit that that's wrong, but they've been a Christian all their life. Don't follow it. Don't follow it. Because what is Jesus referring to here? In the church, a self-absorbed or a cultural Christian who's not concerned how they come off to those coming into the church who may not know the Lord. Or a pastors who have replaced holiness with cool and relatable, so much so that, you know, there's no reverence for God's word. It's just, hey, let me reach those in society, right? That, that's a problem. It's telling people that their lifestyles are okay, man. It's cool. God's cool. He's relatable. God is holy. Right? We can't forget that. As representatives of God, we need to take care to protect and not to stumble, to be a good example to the children, to the downtrodden, to the lowly in society, and to those who have no hope. And at some point, we may have to ask ourselves, do I do that? Or am I just so pre you know, preoccupied with my own agenda that, I don't think about it. When we read this scripture, it's something to take a look at. Verse 6. You know the word millstone, actually there's two words there, and it's, it's called a donkey millstone. Right? If a donkey, it would be worse, it would be better to, to do this than to stumble these little ones. To take a donkey millstone, put it around your neck, and to be cast into the sea. Now let me explain that. These were huge circular stones. They were carved out a certain way. And they were so big and so massive when they ground, ground the wheat 
that donkeys would uh, be, you know, harnessed and tied to these things, and they would go around and around in a circle. They were so heavy that an animal had to keep turning it to grind this wheat. So this is what he's speaking about. Now, you, you got to think about this, right? Stumbling a little one. The, the intensity and the seriousness and the sobering words that Jesus gives. And, and just go through it for a minute. I've actually had the unfortunate um, experience to almost drown a few times. Water and I don't do well together, especially when I was little and my friends were fooling around. And it's a scary feeling. I mean, how many of you have been pulled under by an undercurrent and you start to lose that air and you're, you're fighting to get to the surface because you can't breathe water, you know that. So Jesus is saying, it's better for you. This would be better for you. That if you take this millstone, it'd be hung around your neck and somebody throws you into the sea. Now just picture, you're going down quickly and you're doing this and that millstone's just pulling you further and further down. So what is he saying? Don't stumble a lesser believer, a weaker believer somebody least in society. Um, Now, Mark's gospel adds in this passage of scripture where Jesus speaks about hell, an unquenchable fire, and he says it four times in this passage in Mark's gospel. So how does some negate the doctrine of hell today? It escapes me. (laughs) You know, I see this stuff on TV and, and more of the liberal theology and, you know, it's okay, you know, God's such a loving God, there is no hell. That's dangerous. Because it's spoken about, someone did a study, many more times than heaven is. Why? Because he doesn't want us to go there. Verse 7, he says, offenses must come into the world, but woe to those through which they come. And believers, and let me include myself in this, heaven help us if the offenses come through us. Now let me just say this a little more. Heaven help us even more if we come from a Bible-believing church where we read the totality of Scripture. I have no excuse, you know what I'm saying? There's no way I can stand before the Lord and go, uh, forget it, Joe. You read that whole Bible a few times. You have no excuse. Now, is there repentance? Of course there is. But this is not what we want to make a lifestyle out of. I want to read um, Mark's gospel, uh, two verses. Mark 9, 49 through 50. At the end of this parallel passage, Jesus says this. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. You know, when I get into Mark's gospel, I'm going to go into it deeper. That is just a very profound portion of scripture. There are just some scriptures that are so profound, could be one or two verses, that over the years, you know, many have wrangled through and said, yeah, but now there's the Old Testament and the, and the fire and the salt and the sac-. I mean, it's just very deep. Jesus just has these one-liners that floor you, that it takes centuries to, to keep getting the juice out of that portion of Scripture. But let me just say this, that both fire and salt were a picture of preserving and purification. And what it means that every person's heart and every person's motives will be revealed. Right? God knows. The, God knows if we're putting on a show on Sunday. God knows where our hearts really are with him. And God also knows what our motives are. Right? 
What are the sacrifices were what was brought to the Lord? Was it a good sacrifice or was it not acceptable? Depending on the motives. Did I just try to get rid of this gimp uh, lamb that was sickly and I'm not going to eat it anyway, so I'll sacrifice it to the Lord? No. God says, give me your best. So he can see, even if the priest didn't detect it, God saw it. However, here's that, that mirror um, concept again. He says, have salt in yourselves. I love that because now he's saying, Christians, believers, you know, have salt in yourself. You're supposed to be a reflection of me. You're supposed to be the preservative that's brought into the world, okay, so that you know, they could see the light, they could see the purifying influences, and you're the ones with my Holy Spirit wholesale that are keeping the world from totally imploding upon itself uh, spiritually. So as believers, we need to have salt in ourselves to be genuine, to have good motives, to be busy doing what the Lord has called us to do and have a concern for the lost. We will be at peace with ourselves and peace with others, of course, if we're following the directives that the Lord has for us in our lives. Verse 8. Let's go back to Matthew 18, verse 8. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire. So speaking figuratively, otherwise, because we've all sinned with our eyes and we've all sinned with our hands, we would be um, all blind and all maimed. And of course, that's not what he's saying because if you really look at the, the understanding, even if we were all blind and all non-ambulatory, we would still sin. We'd be just keep plucking things off until there was nothing left to pluck. So what is he saying? He's saying that we need to be aggressive in eliminating things in our lives that cause us to sin. But most of all, let's look at the context here, when it affects others, right? when we're a stumbling block to others. That is the, the, the key thing here that we need to understand. The disciples were, again, there was a kid by. So Jesus easily found the kid, put it in the midst of them. They were starting a jawbone about how great they were and the positions they were going to get, and it was probably stumbling to others around who were listening. They were probably saying, we got this from the Pharisees. This is just more of the same. Jesus, is, Jesus taught them a very strong lesson in humility and what it means to be great in the Lord's eyes. Verse 10, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. To despise or to disesteem. Could there have been definitely an element of celebrityism, clickism, exclusivism, you know, all that kind of stuff, all the isms, um, and all the while they were unconcerned about the spiritual health of those around them that they were trying to be or should have been an example to. Now, let's look at this too. When we look at the little ones, again, we, we really have a broad scope now, all right, as we understand, as we go through the scripture. But when we talk about uh, the little ones, uh, and if he's speaking about the children, this is probably where the concept of guardian angel comes from. And I would just say this. Um, they, there's always a direct line. The little kids, and maybe there's an angel assigned to each one, and Jesus says they, the angels always see the Father's faith, face in heaven. So there is a direct line between those little children and the Father. Heaven helped the person that hurts a child. 
There's, There's no repentance, if there's no repentance. Now I just would take a, let me just go on a little soliloquy here, a little sidebar. Um, let me just take this apart. Number one, I believe that um, if a child dies, a child passes, it's immediately ushered into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we've covered most of the scripture here, uh, the majority, the new in the Old Testament in this church. Uh, you read other, you know, even other commentaries. Uh, basically, I believe even the firstborn of Egypt, remember that? If they were babies, that they went to be with the Lord. Their parents may have been awful parents, pagans against God, but the Lord, I believe those little kids were ushered right into the kingdom. You know, let's, let's look at this. Um, you know, and we, at Calvary, we talk about an age of accountability. Um, does a six-year-old really understand? Maybe, but they're not completely developed to understand those greater concepts of salvation and eternal you know, security and all that kind of stuff. So there's some point in a child's life, I mean, if you're 21, you know, you should know better. (laughs) Okay, so um, I can't tell you where the line is. Two, I believe that, and I've been asked this question, what about my child who's severely mentally retarded? What about my child who has autism? I believe that a child who never leaves the stage of a child in their mind, who's 50 years old and they still need help because they can't take care of themselves, I believe that person's good too because they never leave that stage of, of So we may look at that and say, oh, that poor person. But in God's eyes, he knows they're going to be with him for eternity and not in that condition anymore. God's a fair God. I love that about him. The third point I just want to make uh, about this is that if a person harms a child and doesn't repent, those angels who always see the father's face, I believe if that person who hurt a child doesn't repent, that that angel will be part of the prosecution when that person is brought before the Lord in the judgment. Let me, let me hear. Here's the evidence. He's got no defense attorney now because he did, he's not in the Lord. So, you know, let me separate my scripture reading from my opinion. That's my opinion. Take it with a grain of salt. It's not as high as sacred scripture. But those are some of the things that I read from this. Verse 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep... And one of them goes astray. Does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. What it looks like here is Jesus makes this full transition. He starts with a little kid, puts him in a mill of disciples, speaks about the little children. He moves to the least ones or the least esteemed, and now he's going into the lost. So Jesus really covers this gamut, and, and, and it's a broad scope of those that he's very concerned about in society, that something doesn't happen to them. So in verse 11, it says, the son of man has come to save that which was lost. Now that says it all. Number one, that's where an evangelistic heart comes from. If you have a burning in your heart to tell a family member who's not saved or tell someone you you met in the street or somebody who's struggling uh, and you want to tell them about the way to salvation, that's the heart of God. That's an evangelistic heart. He doesn't want any to be lost. That's his desire. Uh, We also see that this is the summation of the reason where to mind ourselves for the lost, right? For the lost. Like it or not, fair or not, we act as God's representatives here on earth. The Apostle Paul said we're ambassadors of Christ, his kingdom. We want to tell everyone in this kingdom, in this world, about that kingdom which is far greater. Okay? 
I would say this, and I believe you would all agree with me that, especially as a pastor, I would feel awful if there was something I did uh, that would push somebody away from the Lord. Um, you know, even when I come to dealing with uh, adults in, in the lobby, kids always run up to me, and I always divert my attention. I hope you don't mind. I just want to acknowledge them, either shaking their hands or listen to something they say. Uh, even someone who comes into the church who I've never seen before, I'll usually say, I'm talking to a mature Christian, you know, just give me a second. I want to grab that person before they leave. I can't always do it. There's a lot of people here, but I try. Uh, here's a funny example. <laughs> I was going somewhere, and I was, all these things were on my mind. I was kind of daydreaming. And there was a, a sister in this church who was in front of me, and I didn't realize it. And uh, I, I, all of a sudden, one, I stopped and I said, I'm tailgating her. I mean, I was like really close. I thought I was in the police car or something. I don't know. But uh, we, we get to the same place and we get out and I said to her, I just want to apologize. I was tailgating you the whole time. I, was, I, was, I had things on my mind. She's a mature Christian. She's here today, so she wasn't that offended. Uh, but, you know, if you, if you think about it, if it was somebody who was a new believer or somebody who just came to the church, they might say they might really be stumbled by that. So we really have to take every, you know, listen, we can't be paranoid about our lifestyles, but at the same time, to do the best we can. And when we've done something wrong, just fess up to it. So there you go. Luke 15 adds to this. Uh, he adds more descriptors. Jesus says it's the same parable, but Luke adds more of his elaboration. Jesus says in Luke 15, not only the shepherd is rejoicing, but the shepherd lays the lost sheep on his shoulder and rejoices. He calls his friends and his neighbors and says, rejoice with me in finding the lost sheep. That's how he feels about you. You're one of those lost sheep. Don't be ashamed. Don't say, well, should I? Well, what if? Well, he couldn't possibly love me. Here it is, right in Scripture. Let me just read uh, in Luke 15, verse 7 and 10. Jesus says this. Again, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. 10. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And you can find some of these themes repeated so many times in Scripture. And I always say this if God keeps repeating something in His Word, it's something to pay attention to. We should pay attention to all of His Word. But when it keeps over and over and over, man, we, that should really, you know, be right at the forefront of, of, of what we're thinking about. So I would just say this, again, if you're one of those lost sheep, God doesn't do it grudgingly. Oh, Bob, he's out there again. You know, you know, Gabriel, he really gets on my nerves. Will you go deal with him? That's not the attitude that he has. He rejoices. You know, the picture of the shepherd who's calling his friends and his neighbors and everybody saying, look, the sheep. I f and, he, and he's carrying the sheep. If you're struggling, if you're one of those lost sheep, sometimes you need the Lord to lift you up. Let him be there for you. You know, my heart goes out to some who uh, just resist and resist and they fight and they fight and, uh, you know, it's just inside of me. I just want to grab them. But that's criminal restraint. I can't do that, you know. <laughs> so I can only use my words. Um, this is what God thinks of you. So I tell you what, if you're a lost sheep or if you don't know the Lord, if you're sleeping, if you're not seeing that this scripture is speaking to you, 
personally. And again, it's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to rejoice about. Wow, I never saw it like that. That's really what God believes? Yes. When he says something in his word, he means it. It's for keeps. Okay? I want to read um, verse 14 again, which is the last uh, scripture we're going to cover today. He says, even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I want to read 1 Timothy 2.4, and, and those of you who know the Bible or know where I'm going, uh, because he just says it over and over again. Uh, he says, he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, 2 Peter 3.9, where he says, uh, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All. Now, some have made a doctrine called double predestination, which denies this, and which they try to finagle the scripture and make it say something different. To say that God, before even creation began, had, uh, was planning to make some people and damn them to hell before they were even born, and they have no chance of repenting and coming to Christ. That is, that's heresy. Either man is double-tongued, We've all been double-tongued at times, or God is double-tongued. When I read this, listen, if I'm going to trust anybody, I need to be trusting the Lord. If he says something in his word, he means it. He doesn't want anybody to perish, but that all would come to repentance. So God is very concerned with and loves the least esteemed in society, the vulnerable, the children, those that can't fend for themselves. He's concerned with the lost sheep. The lost sheep that may not even know that they're lost sheep. He's also concerned with everyone being saved. And it's obvious, you know, where he sums it up. Why even the whole thing about stumbling. You guys are my representatives. I don't want anyone to perish. You know, you guys, you need to be better than that. Come on. This is the way the Gentiles act. This is the way the Pharisees act. Guys, get it together. Get it together. Be a good example to these people. The believer may ask, how does this affect me? Well, number one, not to be so preoccupied with what we want. Not to be uh, so concerned with our agendas and our goals. Again, the disciples made that mistake. That's why we're reading this, because they were so concerned with their goals and agendas. Now, again, I'm not going to be too hard on them, because if I was, if I was one of the 12, they would probably record things that I said that were really ridiculous, and the Lord rebuked me like 10, 15, 20 times. So it shows that they're human. But again, they were preoccupied with their own ideas, their goals, and their agendas. Our desire needs to be for the lost sheep as it is God's desires. And one of the ways to be responsible for them or to have a responsible attitude is not to bring any of them to stumble, is to reflect the light of Christ. And that needs to be our prayer. Let's pray.